Well, if you have your Bibles, be opening up to the book of Ruth. want us to begin tonight and spend the next several Sunday nights walking through the book of Ruth, a story that um, no doubt, I hope, is familiar to each one of us, but a story that I still believe we can gain some incredibly valuable insights from about God and about the way that God works uh, in His people's lives and in our lives. The truth is that... uh, The book of Ruth, or the story of Ruth, is one of the most compelling stories uh, in in the entire Bible. Um, It is a story that is filled with all the elements that you're looking for. Uh, There's tragedy, there's there's grief, there's a sense of, of awkwardness, there's hope that comes from unexpected places, there's marriage, there's childbirth, there's even redemption. And through all of these things that you're going to see in these four chapters, what's so painfully obvious to everyone who would read this book on the outside is the hand of God, and that God is working not only in the life of Ruth and in the life of Naomi, but that God is working within the life of His people. And so our goal, our goal for this evening and over the next several Sunday nights is is to is to keep that tension in our minds, to, to suspend some of what we know about how these things are going, are going to play out, but that, 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 that tension that's so powerful in, in the lives of, of, of these events that are recorded before us so that we can appreciate the insights that are going to come from this text. So, as we look at the book of Ruth, its context is a time of the period of the judges. It's an incredible time of upheaval in, 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 the, in the nation of Israel. You remember maybe the best verse about what that time looked like was in Judges 21 and verse 25. For in, that, for in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In many ways it was the wild, wild west. Right? It was, that, it was that period of time when uh, you can read through the book of Judges and you will constantly find yourself seeing these things that people did or said and thinking, what? What in the world are they doing and where did that come from? There was just a great instability in the land. That's the time that Ruth was born into, that Ruth lived in. So let's just read a, a few verses here in chapter 1. It came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem went to Judah, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab, and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and, and Chilon, and Ephrathoth of Bethlehem in, Jew, in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. So it wasn't only a time of political uh, uneasiness. On, on top of all of the upheaval that was going on in, in the land, the text tells us there was a famine. People didn't have enough to eat. I seriously doubt there are many of us in this room who know much about famines. 
we don't even know much about shortages and, and struggles of that nature. It's just not the world that we live in, or at least not the, the, the context that we live in. Uh, if you have need of food, there are opportunities for you to get food. Uh, our government provides uh, many of those opportunities. Our churches provide many of those opportunities. If you are here tonight and you don't have any food, let me know. We'll make sure that you leave here with some food. And we, have, we have different ways that we have set up to try to feed people. The, the truth is, if you're starving, if you're starving, you can come over and eat at my house. You can go out to eat with us tonight, and if you really don't have money to pay for your dinner, I'll pay for your dinner. I'm not offering to pay for everybody's dinner. That's not what I just said. Okay, I want to be real clear. Some of you jokers like to quote me on stuff I didn't actually say. But, but there was a famine where people become desperate of saying, well, what, what do I do? Where do I go? Because we need food to eat. And they turn to probably the last place that any faithful Israelite is going to want to turn to. They turn to the land of Moab. Now, it's real easy for us to read over and, and see, well, they're in Bethlehem and there's a famine, so they go to Moab because there's some food in, because there's some food in Moab. But, but it's not really as simple as that. You know, people in, people in Israel felt a certain way about people in Moab. And people in Moab felt a certain way about people in Israel. You, you read throughout, throughout the text um, especially in the book of Genesis, and you will find that Moab is long regarded as ungodly people. People who have consistently been a thorn in the side of God's people. You remember from, from the very beginning that the people of Moab, Genesis chapter 19, these are the descendants of that incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters, so it started off bad, right? And, and, and it tends to grow from there. In the book of Genesis, you read about, you read about the Israelites and they're wandering, in, they're wandering in the wilderness and they come to the land of Moab. And you remember it's Balak. It's the king. You remember the story of Balaam and Balak? Balak is of, is of the Moabites, and he wants permission, and so they go to Balaam to try and curse them. And there's that long story that the Moabites didn't want the Israelites coming through their land. He wanted them to be cursed. Of course, you know how that story works, and Balaam, he tried, but he couldn't. And there's the donkey that presses his leg up against the wall, and there's the angel of the Lord with the sword about to kill him. You remember, that's all in the context of the people of Moab. They don't like the Israelites, and the Israelites don't like the Moabites. But you remember in the book of Numbers, it tells us that even though Balaam didn't curse Israel, he did, he did tell Balak how to get to them. You remember? Remember what he told them? Remember how you get to a group of people? Anybody? The women. The women, right? You sin, that's it. That's what, once again, that's, that, that's not new, right? That's a very old tactic. But Balaam said, you want to get to them, you send these pagan women into them. So that's exactly what they did. And you know what? It worked. It worked perfectly. 
And all of a sudden, these people who were the people of God were going after the gods of their women. And, and because of that, there's this plague that comes upon them. The Bible tells us that because of what happened when the Moabite women came amongst them, there was a plague that led to 24,000 Israelites that died. 24,000 people died because of these people. We, we think about 9-11 and how we will never forget, right? The thousands, can you imagine if something happened where 24,000 people died? Do you think that the Israelites knew something about who the Moabites were? Do you think their children and their... Yeah, of course they would. These are not godly people. This is not a place that you want to go. But, but when you're hungry, but when you're starving, you do what you have to do to eat, right? So they move into this place out of desperation. But can I tell you, if you have to go and live in Moab, do you know the very last thing you want to get out of Moab? A woman. You don't want a Moab. I mean, you think about, do you think about for your sons and for your daughters about what sort of man, what sort of woman you want them to marry? Everybody, you have these conversations, right? Dale, Beverly, you guys talk about your kids and now your grandkids. What sort of a man do you want them to marry? What sort of a woman do you want them to marry? Right? You guys talk about Gavin and what sort of a wife he's going to have one day. I'm telling you, you don't want a Moabite woman. Are there, I mean, there are types of people like, I don't want them marrying them, right? That's, that's how this would have gone, gone about. So they go into Moab, which is bad enough. But they went into Moab and they picked up Moabite women. That's not a good thing. Now, we know the end of the story, but I'm just trying to think about this from, from the perspective of, of someone who was living it. I know what Ruth is going to be and how this is going to play out, but this is going to start out pretty rough. They're in Moab, and, and, they, and they take on these, these women. And then, and then the sons, well, and then the sons die. We, we can read about this in verses 3 and 4. And then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with, two, with her two sons. So we're forced to go and live in a land that nobody wants to go and live in. And then my sons actually marry people that that is not how I was planning on that going, right? These, are un, these would seem to be ungodly even from a pagan society. Even later in the chapter, he'll tell us that. And then her husband died. Some of you know what it means to lose a spouse. To turn your entire world upside down. That's what's going on in Naomi's life. But, but she had her two sons. Right? Some of you will say, I don't know what I would do without, without my son. I don't know what I would do without my daughter. Naomi had her two sons. And she was in a place that she didn't want to be. And there was a difficult family situation. And her own husband had died. But at least she had her two sons. And they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of, of, of one was or Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And then... And then, both Malon and Chilon 
also died. And the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. So we start with a famine, and then we become a widow, and then we become a, that, that single mother, and then they married Moabite women, and then, and then her sons died. Cold, hard facts, one after the other. We haven't even gotten in any dialogue, right? You've never heard a word from Naomi. You've never heard a word, a word from, from, from Ruth. All of these things, all of these things are happening. And there they are. And there they are, just three single women with no children. Now, you understand that that's a bad thing, but in the Old Testament, this is even worse. Because there's nothing worse. There's nothing worse. It is the curse of all curses that your name is going to stop with you. You think about how often we read about birthrights. How often we read the genealogies in the New Testament. Which they don't mean much to us, do they? We, we don't just really dig into the genealogies. But to a Jew, that's a big deal. That's why they're there. All of a sudden, your genealogy is done. Right? So the idea of having an heir, of having your family line go on, it's a big deal. And I'm telling you, they're looking at their situation saying, uh, it's done, it's stopped. We are three widow women who are living together. This fellowship of suffering. Each one of these ladies understanding what it means to lose their husband. And there they are in Moab, with no way to make a living, no hope of children to carry on the family name. So what are they going to do? Well, in verse 6, we have our first glimmer of hope, if you will. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. For she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited His people in giving them food. It's been ten years, and Naomi heard a rumor. Can you imagine not just being hungry for a day, but for a decade, for a lifetime, constantly having to struggle and scrape for every, for every bit of food that you were able to eat? That's what they've been doing. And then they heard a rumor of what God was doing. The Lord had visited His people in giving them food. Back in Bethlehem. Back in, back in Israel. And so she makes the decision to return to Bethlehem because there, at least there, there is food. But she decides that she's going to encourage her two daughters-in-law to remain, to remain there at Moab. And so she departed from the place, this is verse 7, she departed from the place where she was and her, and her, her, her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi, and Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house, for the Lord, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. And so she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. 
She says, you just need to go back home. Uh, we're all living in desperate times. I'm going back to Judah, to Bethlehem. You stay here. You stay here in Moab. They said to her in verse 10, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. And Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. So, so they're, they're, she's saying, you need to stay. And they say, no, we're going to stay with you, Naomi. And Naomi looks at them and says, why would you stay with me? Because there's no hope with me. There's no hope with me. And the, the primary hope that, that, that she seems to be getting towards, and this is going to be big as we go forth in the book of Ruth, the primary hope is this hope of an heir. A hope that your generations could continue she makes reference here to what we commonly know as Leverite marriage. Uh, they didn't call it Leverite marriage then. It has nothing to do with the tribe of Levi. It has everything to do with Latin. Okay, that's how I know they didn't call it Leverite marriage. Uh, the, the, the idea, simply uh, Leverite, just marriage with a brother-in-law. But the point that, that, that he's trying, try, trying to get at there is that if your husband would die, then your brother-in-law, your husband's brother, would come in and provide you with an heir and take responsibility for you. And this is the point in most lessons where a lot of women start looking real nervous, right? When I mean, you start thinking about your brother-in-law, and that's not a pleasant thought. But to understand, this is a very different time that, that these things are going on. And she's saying... I don't, I, don't have, I don't have any other sons to give you. <laughs> the truth is, if I, if I could have a baby today, would you wait until that child was old enough for you to marry, to provide you an heir? Are you, you going to wait 15 years? Are you going to wait 20 years? You're, of course you're not going to do that. I'm telling you that there's no hope. Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. This is where this comes in in the law. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, then the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as a wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her, and it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed, will, will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel." It's not just having a child, that's a big part of it, but it's providing an heir and then you taking responsibility for that family. So, so this is, we'll, we'll see this play out uh, throughout the book and we'll, we'll talk more about this, about this Levite marriage that was, that's going to be so, so key here. So they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth... Ruth clung to her. It's the same word that we see in Genesis chapter 2 when we're reading about 
the husband and the wife relationship, just to understand the, the closeness or the intimacy here, right? That it talks about how someone is to leave their parents and to cling to their spouse. Sometimes we say, you know, whenever you start cleaving, it's time to start leaving. That's, a, that's another one. But, but this is the same concept. This, it is so close. Like, I, I'm, not, I'm not going to abandon I'm not going to abandon her. And so she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. You need to go. This is going to be best for you, Ruth. And Ruth makes this statement in verses 16 and 17. She has to have no idea what she's saying, but maybe having perfect understanding. And Ruth said, Do not urge me. Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts you and me. And this vow is going to change everything going forward. I'm not going anywhere. It's one of these great statements of faith, right? One of these great statements of faith. Where you go, I will go. You shall be my people. Your people shall be my people. And your God shall be my God. Now, she really has no idea of knowing if this is going to be a positive thing or a negative thing. There are these things that you don't know. When when you... When you make a commitment to someone, are there things you don't know? Of course. Uh, people always say about, about preachers, right? You, 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 know, you hire a preacher, but you don't really know until you get him, right? The same thing about churches. You can, you can decide to come work with a church, but you don't really know until you're there. True? Same thing with marriage. I mean, you think you know, you, you've been together, you've vetted all these things, but you don't really know. Until you get into it, right? That's why the first year of marriage is, is the, the hardest year of marriage. Statistically speaking, right? I mean, it's in that first year that divorce is at its highest peak ever. Why? Because people don't know what they're getting into. It's, it's, that, that's, anytime you make this great commitment, that's what's going on with Ruth here. But that doesn't mean it has to be a bad thing. It's a, more so a turning point where she just decides this is the direction that I'm going. This is the direction that I'm going, and I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to trust your God. I'm going to, I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to trust your God. Sometimes, because of the parallel, we, even, we see these things like in, in marriage ceremonies, right? Where you go, I will go. We, we, you've heard those things, but understand the context. This is a daughter-in-law talking to a mother-in-law. That's the context. You want to, have, you want to talk about family relationships? And I know even Christ talks about this and how he brings division to this relationship sometimes. But to understand, this is, this is the ideal. This is the ideal of, 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 where, of where Ruth is saying, no, you are family. We are family. And so the two of them went, the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. Naomi's going back home. Doesn't really even respond to Ruth, right? They came to Bethlehem and it happened when they came to Bethlehem, that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Is this Naomi? 
You ever have that moment where you see somebody um, and from, from high school and you think, hey, is that... Is that is that that guy? Is that and you you think you ever had you have those moments? You know it's like you know it's like a Ned Ned Ryerson right? That's the groundhog that you know you know what I'm talking about. It's like this moment where this is where this is coming on and that's kind of what's going on. Naomi she hasn't been there in a decade, by the way. Do people look different after a decade? I'm going to tell you, I have my 25th high school anniversary coming up, and I get on Facebook. Those people look old. They are looking old, and some of them have gained some weight too. Um, and they're not watching tonight, so I'm not worried about it. But, but I mean, people look different after a decade. But I, that is Naomi, and they're excited about this. This is Naomi. And her response in verse 20, it, it's, one of the, it's one of these very real responses to kind of let you know where she's coming from. She looks at all these people who, you know, they're gathering around and they're standing out, they're standing out in the parking lot. And she said, she said, do not call me Naomi. Like, I can kind of hear somebody experience, like, I thought that was your name, right? I mean, is it one of those weird things where you decide to change your name after high school? Or what, what, what's the deal with that? Don't call you Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? It's one of those moments where you're, you're all excited to be, to be, seeing, to be seeing someone, and, and man, this is Naomi, I haven't seen you in a decade, and all of a sudden, she hits them with, don't call me Naomi. You call me Mara. Can you picture being in that, in that conversation? And, and you didn't, the first thing you talked about was not, was not how wonderful her husband was or this new job that they had or let me tell you about the kids, let me tell you about the grandkids, let me tell you about all these great things that are going on in my life. Nope. The very first thing she says is, the Lord, the Lord has dealt, the Lord has dealt bitterly with me I went out full, and the Lord brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me. Can you picture being in that conversation? Be like, okay, right? That was definitely a downer, and I'm going to try to walk away quickly from this conversation. That's, that's exactly what's going on there, right? But I want you to feel this is where Naomi's at. Famine, run, running to Moab, her husband dies, her sons die. Now, now, now one of her daughter-in-laws is gone. The other one, maybe even worse, that she came with her. So Naomi returned. Naomi returned. And Ruth, the Moabitess, there it is, again, it mentions who she is, right? This is the negative picture. It's not Naomi and Ruth. It's Ruth, the Moabitess. I think, I think it's significant that that's singled out. Her daughter-in-law with her. <laughs> Do you know who I saw the other day? I saw Naomi. And she started off on this thing about how God had been so bad for her. And do you know what sort of a woman she had with her? Do you know who her son married? Y'all ever had, you ever heard some other people having conversations like that? Of course. 
they returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. That's the end of chapter 1. And if you don't know the rest of the story, go ahead and read it. It's, it's, kind of, it's meant to be read all at once, but several of you told me that you were hungry before we started tonight, and you don't want me to preach for the next three hours, so we won't. We'll break this up. But it's, it's easy for us to leave here very depressed. I mean, here we have this woman, and, and why is she suffering? She's not suffering because of, of any particular sin in her life, is she? I mean, sometimes people, you see, they're, like, they're, they're reaping what they're sowing, right? And they're like, well, this is why the, that's not why this is happening. It's just life that's happening to her. And not a particularly good life. One thing after another, and the weight of circumstances becomes unbearable. It's from this valley. I'll give you the good news if you haven't read the rest of the story yet. It's from the depth of this valley that God begins to shine a ray of hope. Here's why that's important. Because there will be times, there will be times in your life where all you will see is darkness. Like, that was the most depressing chapter I've ever read. Except if you want to talk about that one chapter in my own life. And it's in those moments where you can say, you can just give up. And you can say, well, it's just bad, terrible, no good, and it's always going to be that way, and there is no hope. Or you can say, it's sometimes when God seems the farthest away from us that he simply may be laying the groundwork for the greatest displays of his own faithfulness. That's what we're going to get out of Ruth. When Joseph is sold as a slave, when an army surrounds Elisha, when the Assyrians have surrounded and attacked Jerusalem, when when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, are, being, are being tossed into a fiery furnace, when Paul finds himself imprisoned, imprisoned for, for serving the Lord, I'm just going to tell you, there's a lot of really bad stuff that people endure in the Bible and in your life. These are pictures of the gospel. These are pictures of the gospel. In our Sunday morning class, we've been talking about the book of Romans, and one of the things we go over and over about is that in the first three chapters of the book of Romans, he spends three chapters just trying to talk about how everybody, every single one of us is guilty of sin. I mean, he's like three chapters to make what he could get in one sentence because he's trying to make a point. I want you to know how bad this is. I'm not pulling any punches, but when you get how bad it is, it is then and only then that you can understand how great our God is. That you begin to truly see His deliverance. Isn't that the picture of the cross? I mean, the, the story of the crucifixion is quite a depressing story. All the way, all the way to the grave... It doesn't get any better until three days after he's been, in the, he's been dead and buried... But then, then it becomes the greatest story of redemption that's ever been told. It's the same thing. It's the same thing that's going on here in the book of Ruth. So we'll spend some time over the next few weeks looking at, at, at these forthcoming chapters, and I think you're going to find them 
to be pretty compelling, pretty real in regards to life, and pretty inspirational about who our God is. But as we bring this chapter to a close, I would simply say that wherever you are, there are some bad places. You are not too far. You are not too far from the hand of God. He can still hear. He can still act. He can still deliver. There is hope. It's that same hope we talked about this morning that we're going to see loud and clear. And that if you don't have that, He wants you to. That invitation to come to be born again in Jesus Christ. To repent of your sins, to be baptized for the remission of your sins. Why? Not because because I'm trying to make such a big deal about those things, but those things lead us to hope. We want you to have hope. That's why we should repent. That's why we should be baptized. So that we might be in Christ where there is hope. To bring all of your burdens and all of your cares. Naomi would have had a few of those, wouldn't she? Naomi would have had a lot of those. But when you carry them and bring them to Christ, you have, Paul says, peace. But only when you bring them to Christ. Well, the Lord will take her burdens away and act in ways that she could have never understood or never predicted. And I believe he can do the same in our lives and the same in our eternities. So the invitation is for you tonight. If you have a need, you come as we stand and as we sing.